It's Thursday, December the 8th. In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman will talk about the fourth wave and the pros and cons of a fifth jab for health workers. He will also discuss if we have reached the end of the road with mRNA-based vaccines, new vaccines on the horizon, and the 2023 forecasts. Does Atagi need a rethink? Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. My name is Gary Groman. I'm a board member or director of the Immunisation Coalition. I'm also uh, have an adjunct appointment at the University of Sydney, and I'm currently consulting to the World Health Organization to environmental pathogens and also to biointellect here in Australia. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. This is what I'd like to cover in this presentation over the next 30 minutes or so. Firstly, what do we know for sure? We've now been three years into the pandemic and there's certainly a lot that we do know for sure. Where are we now? And we'll look at some of the epidemiology there, look at Omicron and its subvariants, some of the genetic data, the disease course itself, including long COVID. We'll look at safety, ask the question, should we get a fifth dose or not? Uh, we'll look at boosters, will they go on forever? Uh, various reactions, antiviral drugs, and then some concluding remarks. So what do we know for sure? We know that the current Omicron is highly infectious and dominating the world globally. We know that Omicron spreads very efficiently, particularly in closed settings with poor natural ventilation, things like hospitals, uh, care homes, buses, planes, cars, trams, and so on, airports, cruise ships, hotels, and offices. And we also know that good ventilation, sanitizers, and the proper use of masks and social distancing will significantly help diminish the risk of spread, not only for COVID, but as we saw for influenza and a number of other respiratory viruses. We also know the severity of disease has been diminishing over time. With each iteration of a new variant, and now even the sub-variants of Omicron, uh, severity of disease is diminishing. We also know that drugs like ivermectin and hydrochloroquine are not effective treatments for COVID-19 and in fact are likely to increase the risk of adverse events. We know that severe community restrictions are not effective in halting disease spread. We're seeing this in China at the moment. We saw it in New Zealand, Europe, even Australia, uh, the Americas. We've seen it all over the world. And this is basically because of asymptomatic carriers, uh, people with mild illness, um, and, but certainly such restrictions are important in the initial stages of a pandemic simply because they protect the health services from being overwhelmed and of course do save lives in those that are vulnerable. We know also that mandates are quite counterproductive in the end because there are many other medical conditions that are missed or laid aside or delayed uh, leading to other issues in the future. We also know that we need at least three doses of vaccine. However, current vaccines do not stop transmission and they don't stop mild disease. Heterologous vaccination also gives better protection uh, than homologous vaccination. 
We know we have adverse events, and depending on the paper you read and your interpretation, they're between one in 70,000 up to 100,000 persons, and that varies with age groups. We know that mRNA vaccines have somewhat higher risk of giving myocarditis to those under the age of 30, particularly males. We know that current antiviral drugs are reasonably effective, but only if given within 24 hours. And there are contraindications that we need to be aware of, and I'll talk about that later. We know PCR tests are still the most accurate for detecting COVID-19. Rat tests are useful only if they're symptomatic and their sensitivity is markedly diminishing. We know there is significant cost to the community in form of mental health, undiagnosed diseases and so on. And there remains an urgent need, as we all know, for vision and unified action across the nation, all the states and territories, preferably with a single authoritative independent health institution for the next novel pandemic threat, which will come as we know there are three to four per century, whether it's influenza or coronavirus or some other respiratory virus um, yet to be discovered. So let's look at the question, where are we now? Here's a global snapshot from the World Health Organization, 636 million confirmed cases, which is clearly an underestimate of what's going on in the world, and over 6 million deaths. Actually a very low case fatality rate of less than 1%. We also know there are 13 billion vaccine doses around the world that have been administered. The situation in Australia, we've had over 10 million cases, 16,000 deaths, again a low case fatality rate. And although I don't have access to a pointer, you can see from March 2020 there through to September, not much activity, just some. And this is when basically all our restrictions were in. Vaccines were being rolled out. As vaccines were rolled out and restrictions came off, you'll see in late 2021 going into 2022, cases started to emerge. And of course, deaths followed that. We had an initial peak early of deaths for the most vulnerable, particularly the aged, uh, but then also now uh, further deaths uh, ensuing as restrictions um, um, become minimized. This is exactly the same data, but cumulative. And it shows again um, up until September when vaccines were being rolled out in 2021 and earlier, uh, and some restrictions were in place uh, travel was minimised and so on. People were more uh, cognizant of using masks and sanitizers. COVID, influenza and many other respiratory viruses diminished markedly. In fact, influenza almost dis disappeared. And the same with the deaths. Uh, the cumulative deaths uh, fo uh, follow, of course, the cases. So we can see that our vaccines have in fact not been very effective. And that's the unfortunate consequence when you look at uh, data like this. But they have been effective in minimizing hospitalizations and deaths, but not the spread of disease. We can also look at the same data by age and gender. This is now in cases per 100,000. Actually, the last time I showed this slide, um, uh, women, um, females were um, in the minority and now that position has changed. You see for nearly every age group uh, that females slightly outnumber males. This was actually not the case a year ago, very much the other way around for every age group. We also can look at some heat maps. And the heat map shows us the one on the top that Australia is in fact a hotspot 
We have more cases per capita than most other countries in the world, and we rival places like uh, the US and Europe, uh, and Mongolia, uh, Korea, North Korea, where cases per capita are very, very high. So things are spreading very, very quickly in, in Australia and also New Zealand. However, we have a very low death rate. You can see on the bottom part of the graph uh, that the heat map shows Australia has a very low death rate indeed. So we've been incredibly successful through restrictions and vaccination and policy in keeping the death rate very low, but also medical treatments, uh, which are available here, but not necessarily in other parts of the world. We also, uh, this is another heat map on um, showing vaccination rates around the world. And for the first two doses, you can see Australia did particularly well with well over 90% of people getting two doses of vaccine. So what about serology or seroprevalence? Some of the best data comes from the UK. You can see here the percentage of population with antibodies against COVID uh, at two different levels, but it's basically 96 to 99% of people have got antibodies either through vaccination or through natural infection or both. We have a similar um, a set of data uh, in children, uh, secondary school pupils and primary school pupils. You see in the top bar chart, uh, primary school people were unvaccinated at this point in March 2022. They were unvaccinated and yet that they have over 80% of them have got antibodies to COVID, which means they've had COVID. For secondary school pupils in the light blue, you see those that are vaccinated uh, and then a group that's uh, had the natural infection that were unvaccinated. So well over 95% of people have got antibodies and therefore have either come across the virus or have had vaccination or both. So a lot of the population has already had COVID either in a mild form or asymptomatically. What about Australia? Two studies we can refer to of seroprevalence in Australia, the first one by the Kirby Institute on blood donors. So they showed anti-spike antibodies to be very high across all jurisdictions, 98%. Again, that would be due to vaccination as well as the natural infection. However, the anti-nucleocapsid antibodies signify past infection. And the seroprevalence there among donors, particularly those between 18 and 29, was at 27%. Uh, declining with increasing age, uh, and it was highest in Queensland. We saw a similar story in children, NCIRS data, at least 64% of 19-year-olds uh, and under have been infected with COVID. Spike antibodies were universally detected in vaccinated individuals, but 65% of vaccinated individuals also had the nuclear capsid antibodies signifying past infection. What about the subvariants? So this data comes from the Gizade database. And the Omicron and its subvariants, which are the ones now that are dominating the world as Delta and the others, all of the previous iterations have essentially all disappeared. We see now BE 1.1, we see BF 7 BQ1s, uh, BA 2.75 still, some XBB. Note they're all in different parts of the world. So what we're seeing are different iterations of subvariants arising through mutation in different parts of the world. There's no one group here that's dominating the world. 
And this is typical of the evolution of this virus. And in the graph, you see the yellow waves there. And we've had uh, four or five waves at least, depending how you interpret the data. We will get wave number six, seven, and eight. But the constant catastrophization of the appearance of each subvariant and every single mutation, uh, particularly in the media and social media, is entirely unwarranted. This is what's expected. It is a constantly changing scene. We will see hundreds, if not thousands, of subvariant iterations arising. Some will dominate for some weeks or months and then disappear, and new ones will arise. The good news is, the good news is that the current vaccines are protecting reasonably well. Now, I'll talk a little about bivalent vaccines to try and stem the spread of uh, some of these new variants. But at the moment, I couldn't uh, emphasize enough that the vaccines we currently have are doing a pretty good job in stopping uh, excess hospitalizations and deaths, particularly in the vulnerable groups. There will be more waves, there is no doubt, but this catastrophization of it everywhere uh, is entirely unwarranted. The disease course itself um, uh, uh, starts with the virus, of course, entering the cell through the ACE2 receptor site, and then there's virus replication in the bottom part of the graph, and then virus release, uh, which is then ingested by antigen-presenting cells, and then you get T helper cells, and that arm uh, of the immune response activated, and you also get B cells, and that arm of the immune response activated to produce antibodies. Clinical symptoms, highly variable, as I'm sure you all know. There are many viral positive individuals that are in fact asymptomatic or only have minor cold symptoms. But for those with more severe symptoms, you see everything listed there from fever to fatigue, uh, loss of appetite, myalgia, rigors, intestinal discomfort, even ocular manifestations. Uh, it's a multi-system uh, virus uh, and uh, it can affect uh, every every part of the human body would appear at this stage in terms of its pathology. Severe symptoms leading to hospitalization, we know that can rapidly progress to hypoxia, respiratory distress that can require uh, ventilator support and oxygen and so on, particularly with those, uh, in those people with comorbidities. We also see this unusual presentation in children, similar to Kawasaki disease, so non-purulent conjunctivitis with rash, mucosal changes and swollen extremities. A high proportion of these patients have hypotension as well. Um, and, and that's seen, but not at a very high percentage around the world. So we know there's a multifocus pathogenesis. It can lead to destruction of blood vessel endothelial cells, uh, leading to blood clot, stroke, heart failure, heart attack, as well as kidney and neurological issues. It can also lead to cytokine storm, lymphocytopedia and so on and patients with pre-existing neuromuscular conditions, there's generally an exacerbation of degenerative conditions, autoimmune conditions, GBS, and in many patients there's also viral reactivation of the herpes group, or, or enteroviruses and HTLV viruses, which has been reported, a number of references there from 2022. So what about the immunology landscape? Uh, we're going to start at the bottom right with disruption of the ACE2 epithelium, and then it can go up to lymphoid organ failure, lymphopenia. Uh, and if it goes the other way, there can be dysfunctional IFN responses, myeloid hyperinflammation, and that can all lead to ARDS in the lungs. And 
then it can lead to cytokine-driven hyperinflammation, and then you get dysregulated inflammation. Uh, so this is essentially the immunology, lands the immunology landscape, uh, which in combination with viral replication uh, causes severe symptoms. Hepatitis in children of unknown etiology, I think I spoke about last time, but I'll direct you to the bottom of the slide. This is now thought to be unrelated to, pandem to the pandemic. It's um, no higher than background, according to uh, recent reports from the Centers for Disease Control. The clinical course for COVID uh, goes over three stages, the pre-symptomatic, the symptomatic, and then recovery. For the pre-symptomatic, uh, there's viral replication. And in this phase, we can use antivirals as therapy and prophylactic antibodies. Then the symptomatic disease, mild and severe. In this stage, we can use immunomodulators, anti-IL-6 and therapeutic antibodies as well. Now in the mild part, uh, we see viral replication and innate immune responses. Virus replication begins before the onset of symptoms which is very typical for a viral infection. Nearly all viral infections will do this. Hence, the ease of the virus spreading in the community, particularly in unmasked individuals that are carrying the virus. The innate immune response, if quick and sharp, ends up usually in mild disease after it starts to drop and then the humoral responses take over. But if with the blue dotted line it continues, uh, and uh, then it can lead to severe disease. And then the humoral responses are also delayed. Uh, and this then is thought to be the basis of what we call colloquially, at least as uh, long COVID. Now, some people may have a significant sequelae with or without long COVID. Many have poor neutralizing antibody. We know antibody wanes leading to reinfection and we know we can get this long COVID or post COVID syndrome. Just want to comment about testing Rat tests are useful only in the symptomatic phase of disease, basically day two through to seven, when virus replication is at its peak. There's not much, probably days two to five, in fact. And the PCR test is much better, can pick up virus uh, in the pre-symptomatic phase and also um, from around about day eight, nine, 10. Now I know that there are some patients that can excrete virus for much longer than that, uh, but in general, this is what we find. And the rat tests themselves in the middle of this graph, uh, they certainly are excellent in terms of detecting the presence of viral proteins, but only really good for symptomatic, interval, um, symptomatic individuals. They can produce false negative results or false positive results. And importantly, the sensitivity is dropping. I read a paper this week saying it's dropped to 17%. And if that's the case, they're fairly useless tests. And if we're using tests that are not very sensitive or have too many false results, then we're actually spreading the disease throughout the community via the use of these rat tests. Nucleic acid tests on the left are much um, better. They're the gold standard, um, best done in the laboratory. There are, or, or point of care. There are some self-tests uh, coming on, uh, which could also be used for home use. Uh, there's also the detection of antibodies, but that is basically a laboratory test or point of care test. So what about long COVID itself? It goes by various names. Um, Post-COVID-19 syndrome is the scientific name. 
Obviously, anyone who gets COVID can have long-term effects. It doesn't matter uh, where it doesn't matter whether they're asymptomatic or have a mild illness with COVID. They can have returning or ongoing symptoms for more than four weeks after getting COVID-19. So most commonly reported is fatigue and dizziness, and these symptoms get worse uh, with physical or mental e effort. There's recurrent fever, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, and so on. And then there are a whole list of rare symptoms, generally neurological symptoms, joint and muscle pain, heart symptoms, digestive symptoms, blood clots, vascular issues, uh, rash, changes in menstrual cycle, and reactivation of herpes group, such as shingles, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and Bell's palsy. The list continues because there can be long-term effects involving organ damage, um, uh, inflammation, uh, again, coming back to organ damage, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And the risk factors are more common in adults than in children and teens. And about 20% of adults will have long-term effects from COVID-19. Severe illness with COVID-19, especially if hospitalized or needed intensive care, all these are risk factors uh, for people to get long COVID. Now, recent research reported in the CDC journal has shown um, using a special MRI to detect and monitor neurological conditions like microbleeds, various malformations, tumors, and stroke. They found that COVID-19 does cause brain abnormalities six months after the symptoms have disappeared. The changes to the brain stem and front lobe in areas of the brain, and all this is associated with fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, depression, headaches, and cognitive issues. So that paper is certainly worth reading in the most recent uh, journal of CDC, and that research I'm sure will be followed by a lot of people. So what vaccines do we have in Australia? We have four that are registered. The AstraZeneca, Moderna, Novavax, and Pfizer. As you know, two of those are mRNA, Novavax is a recombinant protein, and the AstraZeneca viral vectored vaccine. Available for everybody over the age of 18, the spike vax for those over six months, Nuvaxoid, the protein vaccine for those over 12, and the Pfizer vaccine for those over five in different formulations. And all of them can be used as boosters. We do know that heterologous vaccination is best. Now, all the clinical studies here for efficacy at least were acceptable and comparable. Immunogenicity, uh, efficacy and effectiveness and safety you would have to say there's not a lot of difference between the four of them. Most of these studies involve 30 to 40,000 people, which gives us a one in 10,000 chance of seeing a serious event, which is why myocarditis, for example, blood clots and so on, TTS, uh, was missed because when efficacy studies are done, these are highly selected. It's a highly selected group of healthy people and um, usually with a fairly narrow age band. So therefore, uh, the results look quite good. They don't pick up uh, issues that might occur with real-world data that might pick up a problem in, with one in 100,000 chance. There are side effects. So the latest data from TGA uh, showing uh, 2.1 reporting rate per 1,000 doses of some kind of adverse event. Most adverse events uh, with the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines. That's not surprising as we've used a lot more of them. Uh, some have come through now for spike vax and a few for the protein vaccine, Nuvaxoid as well, and a number that are unassociated or unclear as to what vaccine they relate to. 
So the rare side effects that we're all concerned about are myocarditis. Uh, it's a known side effect for Pfizer and spike vax. I think there's a few cases that have come in now for new vaccine as well. Uh, myocarditis is more common after the second dose, particularly in young men. Shows some data on that. And TTS is rare, but a serious side effects of the AstraZeneca reported in very low numbers in about two per 100,000 vaccinated people after the first dose. We've also had 14 deaths related to vaccination according to the TGA, occurring in people aged between 21 and 81, 13 related to the AstraZeneca vaccine and one to Spikevax, the Moderna vaccine. So here's a recent paper uh, on myocarditis, a study done over 2020 to 2021, but published this year. And it shows uh, cases of myocarditis after the vaccine uh, by age at onset and also the first and second dose. And you can see quite clearly um, that it's clustering uh, between that 12 to 20 year age group and then tailing off. Uh, and for both vaccines, whether it's the Pfizer vaccine on the left or Spikevax on the right. And you see also in the light blue that the second dose has far more associated with this adverse reaction of myocarditis than the first dose. The symptom onset, usually over 10 days, generally within the first two or three days. Uh, that's what's generally reported. Uh, and again, the second dose is most common and um, in adolescent males in particular and, and some uh, younger men. Quick word about boosters and bivalent mRNA vaccines, which um, will be on the market soon. So bivalent vaccines using uh, epitopes from BA4 or BA5 subtypes um, or whatever they choose, don't seem to give any further significant protection over current vaccines. Now, not everybody will agree with that statement, but the fact is that immunogenicity or antibody responses isn't everything. There's also T-cell responses. There's also subclinical infection and natural infection that needs to be taken into account. And as I read the data, because the vaccine, when it's a bivalent, has to be diluted, so it's 25 um, milligrams per dose for the bivalent and 50 um, uh, for the normal dose, you get a very different response and not necessarily any better protection. So I think the jury's out as to whether these updated bivalent vaccines will do any better than the current vaccines we have. Certainly the Novavax vaccine does better than bivalent vaccines on the uh, data that I've been studying. Should we have a fifth dose for healthy persons? For people with underlying conditions, certainly I think they should have a booster every four to five months, as has been recommended by ATAGI and other groups. That seems to be clear because of immunosenescence, because of being immunocompromised, because of having other underlying conditions, a fifth dose to boost antibody would appear to make sense. But should a healthy person have a fifth dose? The recommendation is no by ATAGI. Part of the reason for that is that the benefit from a fifth dose is marginal. The um, likelihood uh, of antibody protecting you uh, is marginal after the fifth dose. So that makes it very tricky. So basically it ends up being an option. Uh, if people want to travel and they're healthy, then maybe they could have a fifth dose. If you're a healthcare worker, you might consider it, but it's certainly not recommended. 
apart from that, the mRNA vaccine risk benefit for those under 30 is actually poor. A target is not recommended that people under 30 get further doses. And when you look at the data, it's pretty marginal for under 50s as well. It's possible that messenger RNA vaccines have had the end of their run. And again, a probably a controversial thing to say. I think we need to now look at different sorts of vaccines. There's the protein vaccine we already have. Uh, we could relook at the AstraZeneca vaccine as well uh, because um, the TTSs involved are very, very rare and also they can be treated and with a modicum of education of patients, they can be treated easily and uh, that vaccine also needs to be relooked at. There's little protection, if any, really from any of these vaccines against transmission. There is against hospitalization and death, severe outcomes, but there's no real evidence to say that it will stop transmission of the virus from one person to another. A quick word on treatments. We know we have antivirals, antibodies, anticoagulants, um, steroids and so on, oxygen. Uh, statins, I'll mention briefly, has been a review of them. Um, and some of the micronutrients. So we have Evishield, we've got Stravobimab, uh, Remdesivir, Molnupiravir. It's been recently said in the last few days that this drug should no longer be routinely given. And, and um, uh, uh, Paxlovid is now uh, preferred. The positive news there is that it is more efficacious than Molnupiravir. But all antivirals have contraindications and one has to be careful with Paxlovid and I would refer you to the TGA website because there are just too many contraindications to uh, give here. Um, however, uh, you could have a look at that and also the website from the Department of Health on eligibility. Essentially, those that are 70 years and older, those that are 50 years and older with additional risk factors, First Nations person, 30 years or older, and those that are 18 or older with who are moderately to severe immunocompromised. This is a review done on statins. Um, it shows a reduction in 28 to 30 day all-cause mortality. You can see from the p-values here just running down the column that they're all pretty significant except for one study where it was not significant. So um, this is uh, exciting data in a way because it shows quite clearly uh, the statins might be useful. They may not be used in uh, Western countries ahead of, say, steroids, but they might be of great use in developing countries where steroids may not be available. And that remains to, um, simply remains for further research to be undertaken. But the data to date, doing a meta-analysis here, shows that we're certainly heading in the right direction with uh, the use of moderate to high-dose statins. Uh, micronutrients and supplements have also been looked at pretty carefully and they're all useful, particularly if the person is deficient. But I think, um, uh, and certainly if somebody is deficient, then COVID-19 can be more severe. There are two studies on vitamin D, I think, that are interesting. One by Meltzer, um, which showed that those that were deficient with vitamin D do have an increased risk for COVID-19. And a recent one this year showing that vitamin D supplementation is effective against COVID-19 infection and mortality. That's a paper in Nature this year, quite recent. So my conclusion about treatments is there's certainly very good evidence for the use of steroids, uh, anticoagulants, oxygen, and so on. There's some positive evidence for statins. Other micronutrients are probably useful if people are deficient. 
it's likely that effective treatments, I hope, will be available before an effective vaccine. And there's still an urgent need to find new safe antiviral treatments that can be taken over the counter. Ideally, you would have a RAT or PCR test, um, ring your GP or service provider, uh, and be able to go straight to the chemist to get an antiviral drug. And that would be the ideal because the antiviral drugs work so well if given within the first 12 to 24 hours. A few concluding remarks and then I have a slide or two on China. I think I couldn't emphasize enough that we have a global pro problem here. We're in a situation where COVID will continue around the globe. It will infect and reinfect. We don't know if we're going to have further subvariants. or sorry, we will have further subvariants. We don't know if we'll have a new variant to move on from Omicron. That's been happening every six months, but we've had Omicron for over a year now. So that has not happened, but we've had many subvariants. There's a need for the globe in a way to transition to and maintain a steady state, low level transmission scenario where we have a virus, yes, that is highly infectious, but not very severe. It almost becomes a natural vaccine virus. Will the, will the virus mutate, force new vaccines to be made? Probably yes. What are the correlates of protection? Nobody really knows yet. Uh, will vaccines prevent transmission? And the answer is no. Are we left with endless boosters? If we have immunosenescence or immunocompromise in some way, uh, underlying illness, and the answer is probably yes. But will the community accept vaccines that might not be optimal? They're not optimal vac vac vaccines. It's the first time really that we've registered vaccines with an endpoint of hospitalization and death rather than stopping transmission and mild disease. Will vaccines prevent severe disease? Yes, I think they will, but the virus is also attenuating. So as the virus spreads around the world, I suspect it will become like uh, the other four coronaviruses that we have at the moment. Should masks be used in closed spaces? I think absolutely yes, if anyone goes into a closed space, particularly if they have underlying conditions and a mask should be worn. But a mask should be worn that's well fitted um, not just an ordinary cloth mask. They will give very little protection, but they'll only give protection if you happen to have asymptomatic COVID or mild disease and don't realize it, then uh, they will stop a lot of virus from getting into the atmosphere and infecting other people. There's a huge need to be proactive and not just re re reactive. We've been reactive to pandemics and particularly in the flu space for 50 years. Um, there's still so much to do in education and surveillance and testing and vaccines and treatments. These are the five things we need um, before tackling the next pandemic, which will be along sooner than we think if there are three to four per century. A final word on China. We've seen an upsurge of cases there with uh, WHO data says there are nine million confirmed cases, 30,000 deaths. You can see most of those cases and deaths have been this year. <clears throat> And again, this is because restrictions have dropped away, but also vaccination has dropped away. So this graph shows that since July 2022, very little vaccination going on. This complacency about vaccination um, is, really, is really a bit of a problem. And I think we're finding it in Australia as well. There are fewer people who are wanting to get uh, their third, fourth and fifth dose if they're in that compromised group or unhealthy group very few people. 
Uh, and it's really important that we keep sending out the message. Otherwise, we could end up with another surge in the same way that our friends in China have had. And the other problem is the vaccines themselves. So we know they've got a zero COVID policy. We know daily cases are at an all time high. We know there've been severe lockdown in places um, and some 590 million people have been locked down. Uh, protests have forced relaxation of this kind of policy and Chinese vaccines, unfortunately, are being predominantly used. There are eight of these registered in China, but they're inferior. Their efficacy is probably around 30 to 50% at best, effectiveness some 30%. Some data shows different, but that's my interpretation of the current situation. That contributes to the high rate uh, of deaths as they start increasing. There's also this reluctance to use the Western vaccines. It's probably an issue of national pride. So I think the answer at the moment for our friends in China is the use of superior vaccines from the West, the use of antivirals, and coming back to basic principles like the use of sanitizers and distancing, masks and so on. As the virus spreads, this is a potential issue, new variants may well arise in China, creating a global threat. And that's something we really have to uh, be aware of as time goes on. Finally, I'd just like to thank all the various organizations that have either provided data or I've used data from, and thank you very much for your attention. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.